This is Hubbonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The appalling deadly riots in Washington, D.C., fomented by an outgoing U.S. president, left the nation and the world surprised. Taken in isolation, the demonstrators seemed to be acting on delusional ambitions to forcefully take back a country that had been stolen by its elites. But seen in the constellation of anti-establishment events in the past decade, here in the U.S. and around the world, a common expression of deep anger against institutions and those in authority are becoming ascendant. From the Arab Spring or the Occupy Wall Street in 2011 to the emotions propelling Brexit and the appeal of Donald Trump, tear it down is the unifying sentiment bereft of articulated political goals, but clear in its antipathy for elites. Is this unrest the natural expression of marginalized communities searching for a voice? Or is it part of a larger shift catalyzed by the influence of an information explosion? My guest today is Martin Gurry, author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority. Mr. Gurry is a former analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency who spent his career observing and interpreting the effects of media and information on populations around the world. His book, written in 2014, offers deep insight into emerging global unrest directed at institutions and elite who lead them. First released before Donald Trump had announced his candidacy, Mr. Gurry's book identifies the source of the dissatisfaction with the elite that animated Mr. Trump's followers and draws parallels to similar populist currents around the world, from the Arab Spring to the Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter. Mr. Gurry will share with us how the themes of the revolt of the public can offer us a lens through which to better understand a global populist wave and the events of January 6th. Okay, welcome back to Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Martin Gurry, former CIA analyst and author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority. Welcome to the show, Martin. Happy to be here. Well, I have to say, Martin, I enjoyed your book. Uh, it's among the few that I would say uh, changed both my my worldview and perhaps my life. Uh, and I recommend all of our, our listeners uh, go out and buy a copy and read it for themselves. Uh, for the benefit of those who have not read your book, uh, let's start at the beginning. Let's, let's talk about this concept of this tsunami or this fifth wave uh, that we're in the midst of right now. What is the fifth wave and how did you personally happen to come upon it? Well, I, as you know, I was a... Um... I was an analyst at CIA, uh, probably had what I, I describe as the least sexy job in, in that organization. I was an analyst of global media. Turned out that for that particular moment in history, that was a place to be because originally my job was very interesting, but very straightforward. The, the, the amount of open information in the world was remarkably small. You have no idea. People who were born after the year 2000 can form no idea how small the trickle of information, of open information, was back uh, in the 20th century. Um, and I was dealing with that world, and suddenly everything went haywire. We're, we're uh, talking about 2001, uh, the dawn of the... Literally, if you, if you read the book, you've seen the chart. Uh, the year 2001, people, you know, scholars have, have done the, the, the work, doubled, produced double the amount of information of all of previous history, going back, to, to the cave paintings and the, the dawn of culture. 2002, double 2001, that process has more or less continued. You chart it and it looks like a gigantic wave, a tsunami. Um, 
Now, the first thing, of course, uh, as an analyst that struck not just me, but several of us uh, in the corner of CIA was, what the hell? I mean, this is, a, you know, we're used to going to two newspapers in France and that was it. That's all you needed to, to know. And you, you had French, uh, the French open sources completely covered. Suddenly it's like thousands, millions, who's authoritative? So the volume and, and the confusion was what struck us first, but what really was, um, I think, determinative, decisive, was the effects. Information has effects. Information sets the stage, the props, the structure around which we move. So it shapes our behavior. The, the world that we think we live in shapes what we do, and that's information. And we could see behind the tsunami of information, this ever increasing levels of social and political turbulence. Um, at first, uh, very uh, limited, and we, I never was able to persuade CIA that this was an important thing. But after I left government, uh, of course, you could see the, the great eruptions from below, starting with the Arab uh, Spring, sadly misnamed, uh, and all the way to uh, the sacking of Capitol Hill just about three days ago. I mean, this is the same phenomenon. It's, it's global uh, and it's structural. Uh, so um, so basically I, I dedicated myself to studying what on earth had happened. Why, why, what was, it was a naive question in hindsight that many of us are asking, what on earth does information technology have to do with politics, right? Today, that it seems like uh, it's obvious. At that point, it was totally two different things. Um, and so it became clear to me as I, I you know, once I left CIA and, and dedicated myself to studying this, that our, our institutions of, uh, all our institutions, but certainly our institutions of democratic government and of democrat democratic politics, um, were shaped in an environment that has left them totally maladapted for this, this tsunami of information. They basically were shaped in an environment, the old 20th century industrial age, top down, I talk, you listen. There is no thought that the public will ever talk back to elites. Um, that system can endure only when the institutions um, had uh, a semi-monopoly over information, as they did back in the day when I was a young analyst at CIA. Once they lost that semi-monopoly, they just lapsed into crisis. And that is pretty much where we are today. Yeah, we are in a state of, of the, the authority. I talk about a crisis of authority. Authority is not, is not power. It's the, almost the opposite of power. Authority is if I can get you to do what I want or what I, what I, what I suggest, without pointing a gun at you. That's authority. Mm -hmm. If you tell me something and I believe it because I know who you are, that's authority. If you point a gun at me and say, believe it, and I say, yes, I believe it, that is just power. Mm -hmm. That's what happens in totalitarian countries and in authoritarian countries. And of course, everybody makes an internal reservation and says, yeah, you're telling me to say it, but I don't really believe it. So what we have is a crisis amongst the class that is supposed to tell us what, what is going on in the world. And therefore, truth is up for grabs. Um, let me uh, just explore a little bit about the um, uh, wave of information. Uh, why is uh, uh, more information disruptive? We typically think of information as being uh, having a salutary effect on society, meaning more of us can know more things about 
more places and more facts. How could that be so disruptive uh, to, in fact, overthrow countries? Well, I mean, it, it, the fact is that that's a good, very good question. And I'm not going to pretend that um, uh, the answer is intuitive. But essentially, you need to have a structure of information in, in every community where everybody can agree <clears throat> on, on what is the important story. And then what are the, the other stories about, about um, you know, legitimacy and power, about who relates to whom? I mean, is it an aristocracy? I'm a noble, you're supposed to bend the knee when you see me, or is it a democracy and we're equal? And so we all shake hands and we were the same person. There are stories that are sustained by um, people in authority and by authority, I don't mean government, but you have media, novelists, movies, you know, culture. That's a very, very powerful kind of authority uh, conveying these stories. When you have this enormous tsunami, there are, it's an extinction event for those stories. So essentially for every story, there's a counter story. And, then, and for that counter story, there's a counter counter story. So what you have is the Tower of Babel, right? Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Everybody was, was, was working together and they were gonna climb to heaven and God did not think that was a good idea. So he struck them with this dreadful curse. You will now speak different languages. So they started yelling at each other and couldn't even understand, right? Well, that's sort of where we are right now. We're all speaking different languages. We're building this Tower of Babel and now we are now dispersed because we can't understand each other anymore. I, I like that analogy. Um, I'm going to quote from your book. Uh, Uncertainty is an acid corrosive to authority. Once the monopoly on information is lost, so too is our trust. Every presidential statement, every CI assessment, every investigative report by a great newspaper suddenly acquired an arbitrary aspect and seemed grounded in moral, predil moral predilection rather than intellectual rigor. When proof for and against approaches infinity, a cloud of suspicion about cherry picking data will hang over every authoritative judgment. Does that yeah. capture the sentiment of, of what you just described? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and as I continue to say, um, there is a sort of mutual um, pointing of fingers between the public and the elites. You know, the, the, the public looks at the elites and says, well, you, you New York Times are giving me the story, but I'm, I'm seeing a different story that you're not covering, right? Mm -hmm. But then the elites will point down and say, you, you're just living in a bubble. You live in a bubble, okay? I mean, I, it has been, I don't, I don't want to be snotty about this, but I mean, obviously for, for um, I would say, evident reasons, uh, I end up talking to elites a lot more than I end up talking to the public, okay? And what I hear a lot, I hear a lot is, the, because of, of course information is my, my subject, is, but the public, they're living in this information bubble, right? Now, if you listen to the elites, I have gone to conferences where I have been on, 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 on the verge of suicide. I have, I have been, I have, I've had to be talked off the ledge because as they were talking about the public being inside an information bubble, there were like three or four subjects that thousands of people in these conferences were discussing. They, they themselves were trapped in such a narrow bubble of opinion and information and they could not see it. So both sides are accused the other of being, of cherry picking the data, cherry picking their opinions, cherry picking the story that should be the one that we're paying attention to. Uh, when that happens, 
There is no story. We're now in a moment uh, that is an extinction event for stories, and that's dangerous uh, because after all, democracy is a story. Uh, the idea that you and I are equal is a story. I can, I can come up with many, many different ways in which we are not, right? Uh, and so it's sort of an act of faith that you make, you know, would you say that, you know, we take this to be uh, self-evident, you know, these truths to be self-evident. It was self-evident to Jefferson, but when you think about it for half a second, it's like, well, I can't play professional baseball. They're not, I'm not equal to them, you know? Juan Soto, the Washington Nationals, my favorite baseball player, right? I wish I were him, but I'm not, you know? So um, there are many, many ways in which we are not unequal. It's a story that we buy into, and it's a very powerful one, and I think a very benevolent one. Uh, but it's in trouble because every, every, every story today is. So you described some uh, sort of a, uh, a clash between elites and I guess what's everybody else. Uh, you mentioned the public. So I want to define both terms. Yes. Um, so who are the elite? You mentioned you rattled off the New York Times. I'll, I'll probably put them in the same list. Uh, who other um, elite voices are there that are essentially losing uh, control of, of the story or the message? I mean, basically, uh, the modern world is sustained by these great institutions. We always took take to government and politics because I don't know why, honestly, because that is the way that governments, I mean, that the newspapers are organized and politics it used to be the front page in the old days when they had front pages. So we have taken that to be the most important thing in our lives, but it really isn't, never has been, still isn't. But politics is one of them. Uh, the institutions of government, of uh, like political parties, uh, elections, uh, jury trials, um, but also media, how information it, it flows inside of a society. Um, also academia, how knowledge is analyzed and dispensed and, and accredit accredited. Uh, also business, of course, you know, the, uh, all these institutions are essentially inhabited by what I call elites, okay? They're all shaped top-down, they're hierarchies, they're these immobile pyramids, right? Business less so than, than government, but they're all, as far as I can tell, hierarchical. Um, so that is that is the elites, they, and they, they had it, like I said, very, very happily in the 20th century. If you were an elite in the 20th century, you were in Lake Flynn because you talked and you could say, this is the way things are, that is the way things are. And you were basically talking to other elites, again, in a very narrow band of what was important. You know, part of what happened with the tsunami was a whole range of information that never got discussed, suddenly was being discussed. Um, and you could talk down to the public and be absolutely certain that the public was never going to talk back. Today, of course, the public doesn't just talk back, it yells back. And in fact, it has to, because if you don't scream at the top of your voice in this gigantic tsunami of voices, in this Tower of Babel, um, you won't even be heard. You will not even be heard. I mean, if you are a, a sane, whispering individual, you will be lost in the noise. So the elites suddenly are saying things and what they get back from the public is an uproar of rage. And they're very unhappy. The elites are very unhappy. They want to go back to the 20th century. Now you want to know who the public is. Yeah. And I, I um, 
make it very clear in the book that there's a specific uh, definition of it. I, you know, it's not, uh, it's not the people, although every eruption of the public from those strange looking individuals that took over uh, Congress all the way to <clears throat> the crowds in Tahrir Square in Cairo, they claim to be the people, right? The, it is in the natural uh, rhetorical posture of the public saying, no, we, we stand for the people. They're not. Uh, they're not the masses. That's a 20th century uh, um, you know, label that we can discard. They're not even exactly like the crowd, although there's a relationship there, obviously. Um, I use Walter Lippmann's definition, which mean, which is that um, the public simply consists of those individuals that are interested in a specific affair and engaged in it. Now, Lippmann, of course, was in the 20th century, and he was, I mean, he was a Platonist. So he really believed that, that uh, the elites should be elites and the public should shut up. <laughs> so he believed that the public could influence uh, affairs only by supporting or opposing elites. But that's gone now. The public has leaped on the political stage, and it is a, a leading actor there. It doesn't need to be uh, um, sort of influencing elites to, to, to have it say. It, is, it has its own voice now. So, uh, so definitely the public, when you look at it that way, is not one. It's many. All right. And that is actually our condition today. We are a very fractured society. We are not polarized. Everybody talks about us being polarized, but it's only we get two choices of a party. So it, it seems like we're polarized. But when you look at each of those sides, they are fragmented into many, many pieces. Right. Uh, and so the public is not one. It's many. And um, and sometimes you may be a member of the public for a specific uh, affair. You may be agitated by uh, global warming or whatever and be out on the streets for that reason or Black Lives Matter. Or you may be some, some QAnon individual and you may be out there to save the world from pedophiles or something. Uh, it, these are not necessarily the same people. It could be the same people changing their minds. Um, the public is not, it has no power to institute change except by abolishing by negation. Uh, and that's where we find ourselves today. So I, I want to come back to that theme of negation or anti-establishment or, but I want to uh, set one thing aside is, um, you know, I personally also spend more time with elites than perhaps I, I want to, but I'm always curious. I want to know uh, what, what the best thinkers have to say. Uh, but I see, I spend time with uh, folks on the right and the left, uh, but I see in your book, there's really not a, a partisan issue here. Um, uh, do you see it as a, a, a partisan phenomenon or is there a, is there a left elite and a right elite? I know there, there's different boogeymans on either side, you know, whether it's a, a George Soros or, you know, um, you know, whomever. And there, there is a left and there is a right. Uh, and, and those, those fragments, those war bands that exist more or less have a left flavor or a right flavor. They have inherited that from the 20th century. Um, but I think those are very old fashioned, very old fashioned terms. Um, left and right has to do with how people, where people sat down in the French constituing assembly right after the French revolution. We're talking the 18th century. What on earth does that have to do with the digital age? Not much. So there's some kind of traditional thinking that has informed, you can say that uh, Black Lives Matter is sort of a left war band and the, the people that took over the, the, the capital was sort of a right 
or Ben, but I'm honestly not sure that you are saying much by saying that. Uh, you really have to drill down and ask, well, what is people actually saying, okay? Um, and and get get to understand uh, what their what their reason for being is, how they see themselves. Um, and part of the problem is we we experience these groups through interpreters, elite interpreters, who put a gloss on them. I said, well, they really mean this. And so it gets a lot more coherent sounding because some elite person who has a coherent thought wants to attach it to say Black Lives Matter or the people who did the, the, the assault on the Capitol. But it, essentially these, these movements are fairly incoherent and, and, and ideologically um, absolutely incoherent. Uh, but as I said, with a kind of a gloss or a flavor from the left or the right. Speaking of incoherence, I'll just share one of my personal stories. I happened to be at a graduate school in 2011-12 when Occupy, uh, which is still a puzzle to me, and I don't know if you want to shed your wisdom on this. Um, I'll share the story that uh, one of my classmates uh, at Harvard Kennedy School uh, was in occupying Harvard Yard, and uh, the yard had to be closed because all the people, uh, students, Harvard students occupying Wall Street, uh, occupying Harvard Yard, they were protesting... um, the privilege of the top 1%. And none of them thought there was a bit of irony there that they were protesting as Harvard students the 1%. They may have come from 1%. They're inclined to join the 1%, certainly the global 1%. Um, and in fact, this friend of mine had a grandfather of his, one of the buildings at Harvard who was named for his grandfather. So he certainly was among the 1%. Uh, how is it that these seeming contradictions uh, are out there? Or let's say uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, many of the marchers I've seen have been well-educated, comfortable, um, middle-class, white suburbanites, uh, right? These are not uh, people who are in the trenches of, of dealing with policy issues. How do you reconcile these these kind of contradictions? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, no, no question of what you say. Your statement of fact, I think, is, is, is right on. I think uh, I have studied um, dozens of these eruptions from below, whatever you want to call it, these revolts of the public. And in no case, including Black Lives Matter, which is rare even in that it involved a racial minority, in no case were the poor, the marginalized, or the ethnic or religious minorities in charge of anything. It was primarily, in every case, a movement of uh, educated people who, descended, as you say, from the mainstream of their societies. I mean, uh, the one in Israel uh, back in 2011, to me, is the most extraordinary example. Uh, These were uh, Ashkenazi Jews who were essentially the princes and princesses of Israel who were up in arms about social justice. So what is going on? Uh, It gets speculative. And let me speculate. Why not, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. go ahead. Don't quote me as, as having come up with anything um, <laughs> as a final piece of analysis. I, I believe there is at least an element of, of emptiness in, in the lives of young people today, okay? Um, back in the day when I was young, um, there were all these structures and, and interactions that provided meaning. Religion, of course, was the big one, but um, 
there were clubs, there were, uh, there, and you were expected to join them. And I'm, believe me, you're talking to a person who is, I am the most non-joiner individual you will ever meet. I was, I was tested, uh, you know, in CIA, you get tested for everything in your personality. And I was like off the chart introvert. Okay. Um, so, but, but people who need that sort of stuff had it out there. If they didn't get it in a club or, or in a school environment or whatever, they got it in, in their, their families, which were often extended, okay? And, um, and a lot of that is gone today, okay? A lot of that is gone today. Uh, religion in that, in that generation, which is primary to blame, we're talking about a, a, a set of revolts that began in 2011, and it was young people then, so it's late millennia, millennials and, and early post-millennial generation, um, not interested in religion much, not interested in having children much, not interested in getting married much. They're young, they may change their minds, hopefully they will. Um, but the point being, they move around a lot. They are um, you know, not attached to their communities by, you know, they don't join the Shriners. <laughs> that's, that's not gonna happen. They don't join the a Masonic Lodge. Um, these kind of artificial seeming, but very bonding uh, um, interactions that the old world had are gone for them. So in the end, you have this, this hunger for meaning that is a natural human, human character. And they're trying to derive this from, from politics, which is of course a disaster. Politics is not designed to, to deliver meaning. But if you ever look on YouTube on those white middle-class kids you were, you were talking about, say the, uh, the people in the autonomous zones in, in Portland and, um, and Seattle, mm -hmm. uh, that endless numbers of them, you can watch hours of YouTube of this stuff. And they stand up there and they say, here I am in the autonomous zone. They never make coherent demands. They never say, I want this and this and this to change. They never make any kind of uh, coherent ideological proposals, but they all say, look, I'm doing something magnificent and everybody around me, I'm modeling a moral world that is so superior to what the rest of the world is. So it's kind of like meaning is being infused into these lives for some few hours or days while they're in these autonomous zones because uh, behavior has changed from what was there before. And what was there before was a lot of emptiness. We all, we all want to believe. Let, let me uh, throw a curveball then at you and talk about what I would also put on this uh, uh, pile of... Um, uh, disruption created by this tsunami of information. Uh, the rise of Donald Trump has been a sort of a curious thing for me as uh, uh, many friends I've seen gone go this way, not just following him as, as they voted for him, but they really, really uh, believe in him. As far as I can tell, uh, I, I can understand a lot of the things he's against. It doesn't seem to me that I understand what he's for. Uh, does he map onto your framework of, of anti-establishment? He's In fact, he was a billionaire or alleged to be a billionaire. He's a um, he, he doesn't live lives like you and me, um, and yet he seems. Thank <laughs> uh, and yet, uh, so many have uh, latched onto him as, as anti-establishment. He they would put him in the public uh, in their crusade against the quote-unquote elite. How does that work? How does uh, someone like a Donald Trump uh, become the totem for a uh, for an anti-elite movement? If I if I'm on the right page here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he traps perfectly. And, and number one, I think historically, that's not particularly unusual, going back to Julius Caesar, who was a uh, total blue blood, who 
was also on the side of radical and revolutionary change in, in, in uh, that particular uh, political community, Rome, Republican Rome, all the way to today. I mean, somebody like Thomas Jefferson was an aristocrat and he was all the, in favor of overthrowing the king. Having, having uh, a person like Trump um, lead uh, anti-establishment revolt is, is, is not unusual. Um, I think what you have to understand though is the, the relationship between these populists and Trump just, is just one of many and, um, and the public. And again, if you're an elite person, what do you say? Well, you say the public lives in an information bubble and uh, the Donald Trumps of the world take advantage of that and manipulate them into doing crazy things, all right? Like voting for them, for example, all right? I take the entirely opposite opposite uh, um, analysis of that. I think populists like Trump are, they're a club in the hands of the public. The public is very angry. The public is basically in, in, in a mood of absolute negation, bordering, as I have said, on nihilism. I believe what we experienced in Capitol Hill was a, was a nihilistic mob that had no thought in its head other than to just sack the Capitol building and vandalize it. There was like, they didn't want to change anything. That's what, that's what they wanted to uh, take selfies of themselves doing it, by the way. So, um, so I think a Trump is not a cause. I think we need to, to, to understand this. He's an effect, he's a symptom. And I think getting rid of Trump, which I hope we're on the way of doing, um, will not get rid of the structural causes that brought him out. I mean, there are many, this, our circumstances can engender many, many more Trumps and much, much worse than that even. So, um, and I think what a person like Trump does is the fact that he's so odd, the fact that he's so strange and outrageous conveyed a message to the public. The public was not getting from its elites the kind of discussions it wanted to hear. And suddenly you have this guy saying weird things, as you say, not necessarily changing anything, no ideological coherence to him either, um, but just his manner of discourse was so different from the weird, jargonistic, sort of ritualistic way that elites present themselves in public that they said, well, he's not one of them. He is not one of them. And let's go with this guy because he's not one of them. And he wants to just, he, he wants to smash them up. He wants to drain the swamp. He's my man. But if he had at any moment turned his back on that, if he had not continued to persuade the public, and this has happened, uh, there are elites that get elected on populism and suddenly said, well, you know, it's comfy up here. Um, the public will turn against them and, and, and they will have lost uh, any credibility. So Trump, I think everybody considers much of what has happened in the last four years to be his creation. He is not a cause. He is a symptom and his going away will not take care of the malady. So, of course, the question begs those of us who care about policy and want to see a successful uh, country run, uh, if not by elites or perhaps better elites, or um, uh, what is the answer here? Um, uh, if, if Trump were met with uh, more competent or more engaged or less elite uh, opponents, would, uh, would this let some of the anger out of the, uh, the, the movement? Is, is there an anti-Trump, uh, uh, anti-populist, uh, pro uh, comedy uh, solution here? Well, I mean, I, I don't deal in problems and solutions, but there, there are ways you can, you can um, 
you can parse the situation. Um, I think, I think uh, the elites, of course, have to exist. We can't, we can't live in a world that is flat. All right, that's an illusion. And and you have three people. I mean, this is big, baked into our DNA. You have three people in a room, and you have a hierarchy. It just happens. It assumes itself. One guy or one woman will be the head, and the others will assume different functions. So it's not that we need to get rid of elites. It's that we need to get rid of the elites we have now. The elites we have now are, um, like I said, nostalgic for the 20th century. They keep, uh, um, I just wrote a piece, um, they keep looking for what I call the Mubarak switch. You remember Hosni Mubarak, dictator of, of uh, Egypt? Tried to turn off the internet. Tormented, did it. They're, they're tormented by young protesters had this brilliant idea. I'm going to pull the switch and I'm going to turn off the internet and, and kill uh, cell phone service. And of course, it did more damage to the economy than, uh, than it did to the protesters. But there is a weird sense in which our elites today, to this moment, I mean, Barack Obama in November, I think, said that the internet is the greatest single danger to our democracy today. Think about that. I mean, so it occupies the place that the Nazis and the communists did in the 20th century, right? right. So, I mean, what, should we nuke the internet? I don't know. So basically the elites we have today, I feel, are, are a legacy crowd. And I think we need to start working on, on, this, on, on promoting people. And we can do this by, by uh, how we vote, but also how we spend our money. And most of all, where we invest our attention, elites that are, that are truly admirable characters. I mean, elite means superior. In the olden days in America, presidents tended to be the most admired persons, even when they probably shouldn't have been, they tended to be. Everybody thought, pointed to the, uh, George Washington as being the most honest kind of person. And it didn't have to be in politics. You know, they would point to somebody like uh, um, Thomas Edison as being persistent, you know, all the filaments until he got the light bulb right and stuff like that. You can tell us very many different ways. In the old days, we looked at our elites and wanted to admire them and sought out those qualities that were admirable in them. We need to go back to that. We need to figure out who it is that, um, that for example, if you want to vote for somebody who tells you that he can deliver utopia, I, I can solve problems, I can solve racism, I can solve in, in, uh, unemployment, I can solve social inequality. Well, don't vote for that person because even if they sincerely believe that, he's promising things that can't be done. And as soon as you are elected, that person will, will be faced with, okay, now I can't do it. So they will, they will make a lot of noise and have a lot of programs, spend a lot of money, but those promises that were made will never be delivered. And the public will sink that much deeper into negation. Can I, again, I always see through my own, uh, let's say political science uh, sure. lens, uh, but in your view, uh, uh, or in my view, I think that the centralization of government, in a sense, trying to promise to solve 330 million Americans' problems is, is you know, a challenge, to say the least, that our, our notion of federalism, that states may handle things a little differently, or even our community, subsidiary, this sort of notion that uh, the government is best when it's closest to the people and, and most accountable. Does that uh, jive with your view? I mean, in other words, we, we may not have... Um, presidents to look up to necessarily because they're, you know, there's very little they can do for us. We may admire our school board or our mayors, uh, you know, this kind of thing. Is, is, is that part of a, like say, brave new world you can imagine? Yeah. I mean, if you had a complete 
you know, Vulcan mind meld, 330 million people who thought identically uh, about every issue, then obviously centralized decisions would be perfect. If you have a country that is totally fractured and where these, frac these fragments coalesce in, in revolts, the second that something large is presented because anything large is gonna step on uh, their toes uh, and, and they will be out in the streets protesting, then the farther down you, um, you devolve authority. Um, the number one, probably the better off you're gonna be because we just happen to be uh, geographically organized in a way that is semi-coincides uh, with our ideologies. But even if they don't, you are that much closer to the source of authority and, you, and the source of authority knows it and is gonna be more responsive to you. And let me just say that I have a friend that I have acquired one of the privileges of being an author is that people write you emails that you've never uh, met before. And these are wonderful people. I mean, he is Swiss and he asked me about, because I have mentioned Switzerland a couple of times and he, he pushed me to say more about Switzerland. And I told him, I don't know enough. I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you more. And he sent me a little essay about how Switzerland works. And it is just astonishing. Let me encourage anybody listening to this podcast, go and, and get a, a, a bead on how Switzerland works. It is impossible in Switzerland to say those people in authority because there is no those people, it's you. You get to vote on practically everything that happens and you get to vote on it from the national level down to the village level. You can have two villages that are adjacent that get to vote on, for example, whether to open up the stores for COVID. You may, have, you may have two villages that are literally part of the same town almost. And one side is open and one side is closed because they voted differently. So that sounds irrational, but I think it's not. It, is, it allows people to assert their authority uh, where it matters most, at home and in their, in their communities. Well, I, I, that, that jives with my view of uh, where we might go, uh, given that you can't make everybody happy. Right. Uh, you can make yourself happy, perhaps your small community happy. Uh, and if you don't like what's being decided in your community, you can move away perhaps, right? Uh, so in our, um, in our uh, we're, we're, we're coming close to the end of our time. Right. Uh, in looking at information for our listeners, um, where do you find, what is your information diet? Where do you look for information that you can trust? Which elites, if you will, if you allow me to use that term, uh, do you look for, for guidance? Um, and uh, how does one uh, navigate this morass of information coming out? It's a tsunami. How do we breathe? How do we swim in, in a tsunami? Um, where do we find uh, trusted sources? Um, yeah, that's a very difficult question because obviously there are personal um, predilections involved. I think one thing I would say is whenever you encounter um, uh, a phenomenon like a, a, a protest or a revolt from below, don't ever listen to anybody but the people who are protesting, all right? Go listen to them, all right? Listen to the people on the ground because there seems to be always a gloss on it. They, they become like this uh, um, blank slate that, that, that intellectuals project their wishes and desires onto. They're revolting because of what I want to happen, you know? So don't do that. Otherwise, I have my own personal favorites and I'll toss them out there because I think they deserve credit. The people like Arnold Kling, for example, who is, um, has two qualities that, that I find um, admirable and I wish I had more of. 
um, he he gets to the point um, immediately. In other words, you know exactly what he's talking about with absolute clarity, and he never uses one more word than he has to do. Right, so he's very brief in this age of you know verbal rehab, the exhaustion of words. You know. And another that I would recommend, particularly if you're into Twitter, and Twitter is one of the ways that I get my information, believe it or not, is um, Antonio Garcia Martinez. He, a uh, fellow Cuban, uh, a Silicon Valley guy, um, possibly the most interesting and the most brilliant uh, uh, person on Twitter, uh, but also the author of a book called Chaos Monkeys, if you want to understand how Silicon Valley works, that's a fun one. Uh, and I have met him and personally, I mean, I'm always citing his stories. I mean, the kind of guy, every time I, I see him or talk to him, it's like, why didn't I think of that? So I just steal it, you know what I mean? Well, they, they, he's so smart. So those are the people. And my final question is, uh, uh, we have inauguration coming up in a, in a week or so. Um, do you see the, the stretched out before us um, more of the same um, or have we reached peak, um, let's say, uh, disruption? Well, I, fortunately for me, I lack prophetic <laughs> powers, right? The prophetic powers, to, I think, died out in Israel around 600 BC. Uh, I have a piece coming out and it, it, it basically talks about Joe Biden being very boring. And um, maybe that's what we need. Amen to that. And again, we, we haven't even used the C word, the COVID word. We haven't talked about that in our conversation. Um, um, maybe next time. Maybe next time, uh, hopefully post COVID, we can look back and, uh, yes. and reflect. Thank you very much for your time, Martin. You've been a fantastic guest and I hope our, our, uh, our listeners enjoyed hearing it as much as I enjoyed uh, our conversation. It was fun. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. Of course, it would be better for us and better for you if you subscribe to Hubwonk. You can write us a review on your favorite podcast app or give us a five-star rating. And of course, it would be great if you shared us with friends. If you have ideas for future episodes or suggestions for me, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.